And last week, we studied one of the most famous accounts in the Bible, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den. And with that study, we reached the halfway point of the book of Daniel where a division takes place. You see, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel deal with historical events. There's one major event per chapter and they're in chronological order, in the order that the events happened. The back six chapters of Daniel, beginning today with chapter seven, deal with supernatural visions and dreams that Daniel had. These visions and dreams are prophetic in nature. That means they deal with the future. But here's what's incredible. Some of what was future for Daniel over 2,000 years ago is now history from our perspective. It's already happened, which is what makes this so fascinating because some of what Daniel has predicted has already come true. So it's already proven itself to be accurate. So as we read and study some of the things that Daniel talks about that are going to happen in the future from our perspective, we know we can take it seriously and that we should pay close attention because he's already proven that God spoke through him as some of the things he predicted have already come to pass. One of the most popular schools of thought in modern preaching is that you should always preach as though the people you're preaching to know absolutely nothing about the Bible. And the idea is coming from a good place. The idea is coming from the place that there may be someone in church who's never been to church, who knows nothing about the Bible, knows very little about the Bible, and you want everyone to feel involved and understand what's going on in the message. And that's coming from a good place. The problem is it's not always possible. There are some things in the Bible that require you to have a basic knowledge of some other areas in the Bible to understand what's going on. And so sadly, many churches will just never ever teach those parts of the Bible because we don't want anyone to have a hard time understanding the message. But the question I want to ask you very simply is this, how far would anybody get in any field of study if they never reached the place where they started building upon the knowledge they had previously gained, if they had to start from scratch every single time. So if we said we're gonna have a a science group, we're gonna get together and learn science and study science, but here's the thing, every week when we get together, we need to assume that nobody knows anything about science. You'll only get to a certain point. You can do a little bit, but you're never going to get into any real depth of understanding. And so if you're a visitor today, if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, if you haven't been to our church much, I'm going to do my very best to make things clear today. But if you want to come to a serious understanding of who God is and what the Bible is about, you're going to need to invest some time into studying it. Nothing of value in life comes for free. Nothing, including a well-rounded understanding of what the Bible teaches. So if that's you, today is a great start, but don't stop there. If you want to become a serious student of Bible prophecy, including what the Bible says about the future, you must absolutely study the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And I'm going to do my best to explain some big concepts today, but I'm not going to have the time to go into detail about everything. I'm going to mention some verses quickly, and some of you will be going, well, I can't turn there quick enough in my Bible. I don't expect you to turn there. I'm just mentioning where the verses are so that you can go back later, watch the video, listen to the audio recording, and pause it, and then look those up on your own time as you study it later. So I want to recommend... If you really want to understand the chapter we're doing today, 
study the book of Revelation. You can pick up a free jump drive in the back that's got our whole study series on it. It's got MP3s of all the messages on it. It's got fill-in outlines you can print out if you want. Make sure you do that if you want to really grow your understanding of the Bible. But here's what I also know. Holy Spirit is here every single time we open the Bible, the Word of God. And so no matter where you are in your relationship with God, if you know nothing about Jesus, God is going to speak to you today in some way if you will say, that's what I want God to do today. So if you would just open your heart to the Word of God, God's going to give you something that is going to bless you today. So let's begin. And we're going to jump in by just reading all the way through the whole chapter to give us an overview, beginning to end, and then we'll begin breaking it down. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. All pretty much self-explanatory so far. (laughs) I'm messing with you. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth that was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me, you think? I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. 
Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Strange, strange stuff. Well, let's jump in. We're going to go all the way back to verse 1 and begin breaking it down. Verse 1, we read, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. If you've been with us through this study series, you'll recall that Belshazzar died back in Daniel chapter 5 after the hand of God appeared and wrote a message on the wall of his banqueting hall prophesying that Babylon was about to fall and that very night the Babylonian empire would fall to the Medo-Persians and Belshazzar would die. We know from chapter 5 that while Belshazzar was on the throne in Babylon, Daniel was retired from public service, probably for around 20 years. And so these dreams and visions that we're reading about here in chapter 7 come to Daniel at some point during those 20 years of retirement, during that season, somewhere between the timeline of chapter 4 and chapter 5. It goes on and it says, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. However this happened, it was supernatural. Whether you want to call it a dream or a vision or a trance or whatever, it was vivid, it was clear, it wasn't the pizza he had the night before, it was a message from God. Read on and it says, then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. And we're going to find that the vision Daniel sees here in chapter 7 is of the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar, the king who established the Babylonian Empire, saw in chapter two. If you'll recall that study, King Nebuchadnezzar had what Daniel described to him as your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed. The exact same delivery system, if you will, as Daniel's dreams and visions which come to him in chapter seven. And you may also recall what Nebuchadnezzar saw in that dream and vision. He saw a giant statue of a man which was made out of different materials at each level as you went down the statue. And the king couldn't understand the dream, but God gave Daniel the ability to interpret the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel explained to the king that his dream was 
prophetic and it was laying out future world history, predicting the next four great empires that would rule the world, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's own Babylonian empire. The first level was a head of gold on this statue. That was the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar. The second level was the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, which would be led by Cyrus the Great, who conquered Babylon in chapter five of Daniel. The third level was the belly and thighs of bronze, which would be the Greek Empire led by Alexander the Great, who would defeat the Persians. The fourth level was the legs of iron, the Roman Empire led by the Caesars who would displace the Greek Empire. Because Israel is God's clock, it's his timepiece when it comes to Bible prophecy, everything paused when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and the nation of Israel ceased to exist as a country, as a political nation. Then the prophetic clock began ticking again, against all odds, in 1948, after almost 2,000 years of Israel not existing. We then come to a final and fifth level on the statue, an empire that will arise, we know, sometime after 1948. We were told that it would be different from all the others, and on the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the fifth empire was a variation of the fourth empire because it was described as the feet partly of iron, which was the fourth empire, and partly of clay. And when we studied this back in chapter two, we learned that this mysterious final empire is emerging as we speak and we went through the whole history of the European Union and we learned it's going to ultimately be a revived Roman Empire, a Roman Empire part two, if you will, which will be led ultimately by the one pop culture refers to as Antichrist. And then Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone which represented Jesus smash the statue's feet, this kingdom of iron and clay, this revived Roman Empire led by Antichrist. And all levels of the statue, all empires in Nebuchadnezzar's dream fell and turned into dust that was scattered by the wind. And then the stone that had smashed the statue grew into a mountain and filled the whole earth and Daniel told us that this referred to the kingdom that Jesus will set up on the earth in the future when he returns to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years in what's known as the millennial kingdom. So if your head is spinning right now and you're like, what the what? You're gonna need to go back and listen to our study on chapter two because in order for me to explain it, I would have to reteach chapter two all over again, which we don't have time for. So that's the quick super zoom cliff notes version. Go listen to chapter two and you'll be able to understand this in much greater detail. So the dreams and visions that Daniel has here in chapter seven are going to be of those same empires in the same order that Nebuchadnezzar saw, which is the order that they have all happened in real life history. And when we reach verse 17, an angel will explain to Daniel the meaning of his vision and will tell him, we read this earlier, those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. And in verse 23, that same angel will tell Daniel, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, making it crystal clear that in this vision Daniel's about to have, write this down, each beast will represent a kingdom or an empire that will rule the earth for a determined period of time. Each beast will represent a kingdom or empire 
that will rule the earth for a determined period of time. That's what the angel who tells Daniel the meaning of the dream tells him. There's going to be one main difference between Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Daniel's vision. Nebuchadnezzar's vision is going to describe how all these empires look from man's perspective. So we look at the Romans, the Greeks, the Medo-Persians, the Babylonians, and, and we go, wow, they are powerful, they're strong, they're glorious, they're awesome, they're amazing. That's man's perspective. In Daniel's vision, he's going to see these empires from God's perspective. And God says, no, they're not. They're beastly. They're horrific. They're awful and they're evil and they're wreaking evil upon the earth. Verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The word that is used there for winds in the original language is the Aramaic word Ruach, Ruach. It's used 11 times in the book of Daniel, and eight of those times it's translated to mean spirit. If you grew up Pentecostal, you've heard the word Ruach, okay? It is translated spirit most of the time in the book of Daniel, and I want to suggest to you that it should have been translated that way in this case. And waters, like a sea, are used in the book of Revelation as an idiom, as a metaphor for the sea of humanity, peoples, nations, people groups. I put the reference there on your outline. You can look it up later in Revelation to see what I mean. So the idea is that spirits of heaven, I would suggest high-ranking angels, Daniel is seeing angels of heaven stirring up humanity. They're stirring up the earth and something is happening among the peoples of the earth and that's where these empires are gonna come out of, our people groups on the earth. Verse three, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know we take a very high view of the Bible. That means we take it very, very seriously. And part of that, part of that means we don't dismiss things in the Bible and say, oh, that's just some sort of imagery or wordplay or it's poetic language. We don't do that just because we encounter something difficult in the Bible. We're very comfortable with the fact that God is God. He can do anything he wants. He can make anything he wants. And he understands things on a level we can't comprehend. But in this instance, we're not going to take Daniel's vision literally because in verse 17, we're told that an angel comes to Daniel and makes known to him the, quote, interpretation of these things. So if it needs an interpretation, it means it cannot be taken literally. So just as we read chapter two and don't go, I believe in prophecy, so I'm looking for a giant statue of a man made of five different metals to appear on the earth sometime soon. We don't do that because it was a dream that needed interpretation. We're not gonna look at this and go, I take the Bible seriously, so I'm on the lookout for some strange things coming out of the ocean someday soon. We're not going to take that view because we're told that this needs an interpretation. This is figurative. This is allegorical because the Bible tells us that it is. So now Daniel sees the first beast that was the head of gold on the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Babylonian empire led by Nebuchadnezzar. The first was like a lion. Underline the word like, like a lion, and had eagle's wings. So just write this down. The first beast is the Babylonian empire. It's the Babylonian empire. 
Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire goes down in history as the greatest, most splendorous empire the world has ever seen. That's why it was represented by the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and that's why it's represented here in chapter seven by the most regal of animals, a lion and an eagle. I mean, if you could have two animals represent you, there's not a guy in the world who's turning down a lion and an eagle. Those things are awesome. Many of you have probably seen photos of ancient statues, carvings, and artwork from Babylon, and many of you have probably seen a lion that has eagle's wings on the back. If you even Google Babylon lion with wings, it'll come up and it'll tell you the lion with eagle's wings on it was the Babylonian symbol for their king. It's all over Babylonian relics, and what they would sometimes do is put the king's head on the animal instead of the lion because it was the symbol of the king. Jeremiah chapter four verse seven also refers to King Nebuchadnezzar as a lion. Note that Daniel describes these beasts using the word like. He says the first was like a lion and that's Daniel's way of telling us it wasn't a lion but that's the, that's the closest thing I can give you guys as to what it looks like. Because all of us are limited in our ability to communicate by our vocabulary, right? We can't describe something using words that we don't even know. So when Daniel sees these things, much like uh, John in the book of Revelation, he's doing his best to describe what he sees with his knowledge and his understanding of language. So then it goes on and it says, I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. There's no clear view on what this represents, but what seems to be happening is this beast seems to be changed from being a beast into becoming a man. He becomes a new creation, and he's given a new heart, which is why some people feel that this is an allusion to Nebuchadnezzar's salvation which you can read about in chapter four, that he comes to put his faith in God and he becomes a new man who's given a new heart by God. And that could very well be the case. Well, now Daniel sees the second beast, the chest and arms of silver on the statue. Verse five, and suddenly another beast, a second, like, underline like, a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they, underline the word they, said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. So make a note of this. The second beast is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the Medo-Persian Empire that's led by Cyrus the Great that conquered Babylon in Daniel chapter five. So a bear is less regal than a lion or an eagle, but it possesses formidable strength. A bear moves slowly and it takes a while to think but when a bear moves, its strength is incredible because it's such a massive, powerful animal. So why is it raised up on one side? Well, history tells us that while the Medo-Persian Empire was founded by Cyrus the Great, who was both a Mede and a Persian, very quickly over time, the Medan side of the Medo-Persian Empire was overwhelmed by the Persians and it became just the Persian Empire. And so by the time we reach the Persian ruler Xerxes, Xerxes is able to boast an army of 2.5 million men. That's big by today's standards. Imagine how big that was when the world's population was a tenth of what it is now. An army of 2.5 million men. It was massive, it was strong, it was overwhelmingly powerful, but there's no way to make 2.5 million men move fast. 
They were lumbering and slow moving like a bear. What are the three ribs that this beast is chomping on in its mouth? Well, scholars believe it's a reference to the three major conquests, the three major battles that established the Medo-Persian Empire. They had to conquer three main places. They had to conquer Lydia, which is modern-day Turkey. They had to conquer Egypt and Africa to the south. And they had to conquer Babylon, which happens in chapter 5. And again, we don't have time to get into it, but for those of you who are Bible students, it's going to be real quick. If you don't get this, don't worry about it. I want to draw your attention to who this they are that tell this beast to arise and devour much flesh. Because what's interesting is whoever these they are, they are directing the beast and what he does. And I suggest to you it's the same they that carried out the decree against Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. The angels or what chapter 4 calls the watchers that Daniel will talk to again later in this vision. If you didn't get that, don't worry about it. Now Daniel sees the third beast, which was the belly and thighs of bronze. Verse six, after this I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it, underline given to it. So write this down, the third beast is the Greek empire. It's the Greek empire under the legendary Alexander the Great. And the idea behind the four wings and the beast being a leopard is that this beast is incredibly swift. It moves with great speed. And in fact, this beast is going to appear in another form in the next chapter. And it's going to be described as moving so fast that its feet don't even appear to touch the ground. And if there was one trait of Alexander the Great's conquests that stuck out, It was the speed of his military campaigns. It was and is quite simply astonishing. As we just learned, when Alexander comes on the scene, the Persians have an army of two and a half million people. Nobody looks at an empire that has an army of two and a half million people and says, yeah, they're probably about to fall. Nobody does that. Because Alexander, when he begins to fight against them, only has somewhere between 35,000 and 90,000 troops. That's it. He's outnumbered 26 to 35 to 1, the incredible odds. And it only took him a few years to conquer the entire known world all the way to India. And by the age of 29, he famously collapses weeping and cries out, are there no more worlds left to conquer? Scholars point out that the reason this beast has four heads is most likely because Alexander dies at just the age of 32 from pneumonia. And he spends most of his life as a gay man and becomes bisexual closer to his death. So because of this, when he dies at 32, he doesn't have any living children. He doesn't have any living sons who would normally succeed a father in the event of his death. So instead, his empire ends up being divided among his four generals, hence the four heads of this leopard. And those four fight amongst themselves until eventually they all get conquered. Notice again that that we read dominion was given to it, given to it. This is so important. From our perspective, we look at it and we say, well, you know, Alexander and the Greeks won because they conquered everybody else. They, They took what they wanted. From God's perspective, God says, no, 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 no. They didn't conquer this other empire. They were given dominion. I said, you will rule now. 
you'll exist for the next 300 years as an empire. That's what God says. He says he's the one in control of all history and the reason they have power is because he gave it to them and allowed them to have dominion for that period of time. Well, now we come to the fourth beast, the legs of iron in the vision. Verse seven, after this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, underline iron. It was devouring, underline breaking in pieces and underline trampling the residue with its feet. This is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about the fourth part of the statue in Daniel chapter two. Daniel said the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything and like iron that crushes the kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. It's pretty much the identical description because it's talking about the same thing. It's talking about the Roman Empire. So write that down. The fourth beast is the Roman Empire, parts one and parts two of the Roman Empire. Now Daniel begins speaking about what's going to be the second phase of the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire that is unfolding right now and will come in the future. It's gonna be ruled by Antichrist, but I wanna remind you, the Bible says Antichrist only rises to power after the church has been raptured. Your reference on that is 2 Thessalonians 2.7. 2 Thessalonians 2.7. So there's no point playing the guess the Antichrist game, even though Christians love to do that. It's not going to be revealed who Antichrist is until after the church has been raptured. After all those who have placed their faith in Jesus have been removed from the earth by Jesus to be with him as all these things unfold on the earth. And Daniel tells us that just as the feet of clay and iron were different from all the other levels of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, so too will it be true of this revived Roman Empire. Daniel tells us, underline this whole phrase, it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. This beast is so horrific that unlike the first three beasts, Daniel can't even compare this beast to any of the other earthly creatures that he's familiar with. It's just monstrous. So this fourth beast is gonna be different in a few ways. Firstly, it's gonna have two phases. The Roman Empire we know as history and a revived Roman Empire that is yet to come. Secondly, make a note of this. It's going to be hell-bent on the destruction of all who do not worship its leader. It's gonna be hell-bent on the destruction of all who do not worship its leader. The Roman Empire demanded that its leader, the Caesar at the time, be worshiped as a god. And you may recall that in the early years of the church, in the first, second, and third centuries AD, thousands and thousands of Christians are martyred. They're killed because they refused to make the annual pinch offering to Caesar, which was a gesture of acknowledgement that yes, Caesar is a God. And they told the Christians, look, you, you can serve your God too, but you've just gotta also do this little offering thing and admit that Caesar's also a God. And the Christians wouldn't do it. And, Thousands and thousands of them were martyred for it. So too, the Bible says Antichrist will ultimately demand to be worshiped as God and will execute anyone who doesn't worship him. As we learned in our study of world history in chapter two, the Roman Empire was different to the empires that came before it because it destroyed those it conquered rather than take advantage of them. 
When Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, he took the best treasures with him back to his museum and stored them respectfully. He took the best and brightest young men from Israel and assimilated them into his government to take advantage of their value. The Persians did much the same thing, taking advantage of the best talent they could acquire. King Cyrus even allowed those he conquered to keep their own religions and he took pride in his tolerance. Alexander the Great kept Babylon intact. In fact, Alexander the Great dies in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon. And they too brought those they conquered into the Greek empire, teaching them Greek and unifying the world. The Romans took pride in what they could destroy. As we've shared before, when they would conquer a city or a town, they would crucify hundreds and hundreds of people so that as you came in or out of the town, there would be crosses with dead bodies hanging on them for months as a not so subtle way of telling you, if you mess with us, this is what will happen to you. The city of Rome was made up of somewhere between 50 to 90% slaves. The Romans believed in peace through the elimination of all other alternatives. You know why you'll do things our way? Because there's no other option. That heart was present in the Roman Empire we know as history, and despite being well hidden at first, it's gonna emerge as the heart of the revived Roman Empire under Antichrist, especially with regards to Jews and Christians. And then a third difference between this beast and all the others is that it will be led by Satan incarnate. Satan incarnate, Satan in the flesh, essentially. So the revived Roman Empire is gonna be led by a man known as Antichrist, a man who the Bible says will be possessed by Satan himself. And in pop culture, you know, we flippantly say, oh, someone's possessed by the devil. Well, I guess not so flippantly, but in pop culture, many people believe that, yes, Satan could possess a person, but it, it doesn't really work that way. While possession is very real, it's demons that possess a person. Satan possessing a person is extremely, extremely rare. In fact, other than Antichrist, the only other person the Bible records as being possessed by Satan himself is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. He's possessed by Satan at the Last Supper and goes off to betray Jesus. So the Antichrist, who's gonna lead this revived Roman Empire, the Bible says is gonna be possessed by Satan himself. Then we go on about this empire and we're told that it had 10 horns, 10 horns, underline 10 horns, just as the feet on Nebuchadnezzar's statue had 10 toes. At this time in history, the power of an animal was exemplified by its horn. And we're gonna find that these 10 horns represent powerful political figures on the earth. In fact, in verse 24, the angel told Daniel, the 10 horns are 10 kings who will arise from this kingdom. So write this down. The 10 horns represent 10 political leaders in the revived Roman Empire. The 10 horns represent 10 political leaders in the Roman Empire. So just to be clear, there's a few things that we don't know. We, we know the, the bare facts, the general idea, but we don't know all the details about how this is gonna go down. These 10 political leaders could be the European Union. There, there could be some massive changes in the European Union and they could shrink back down to 10 nations and it could be that Antichrist becomes the leader of the European Union and then the world. Or it could be that the United Nations, which is constantly working towards a global government, and very interestingly, you can look this up, in their mind, in the United Nations mind, the world should be divided into 10 regions that should each be ruled by a separate 
ruler. You'd need to do that. The world's too big to be governed by just one person. There'd need to be 10 leaders. And it could be that as the United Nations power grows, the world is divided into these 10 regions. Each region has a leader. And Antichrist rises to lead the United Nations and decides, I'm going to be the king over all of these 10 regions. Or it could be that Antichrist leads the European Union. He does such a great job brokering peace in the Middle East that he's able to unite the world under his own governance because the Bible makes it clear that when the world sees Antichrist, they're gonna be like, this guy's awesome, let's follow him. You gotta know the Antichrist is not gonna show up dressed in black going, <laughs> I mean, peace, peace, peace to you. He's not gonna do that. He's not gonna be twirling his mustache all the time, you know, with a cane or something like that. He's not gonna be doing that. Antichrist is going to be the most magnanimous, attractive, charismatic, likable person in the world. If you were here when he was revealed and you said, I think he's the Antichrist, people would look at you as though you were suggesting that Mother Teresa was the Antichrist. That's how it's going to be. So when people tell you like, you know, I think Barack Obama was the Antichrist or I think this person's the Antichrist, I always tell people, I'm like, no, they're not popular enough to be the Antichrist. You don't look at someone in the world who's evil and say they must be the Antichrist. They're definitely not the Antichrist. They could never be because everyone will love the Antichrist. Otherwise, there's no other way that he could rally the whole world behind him. He's gonna be the most likable guy we've ever seen. All that to say, don't get too caught up in the day-to-day -day details of the news cycle. Don't say, oh man, this prophecy stuff isn't working out. There's too many countries in the European Union or that resolution didn't pass at the United Nations. Pay attention to the overall flow and direction that the world is moving in. Listen, God already predicted that Israel would be a nation again and God already predicted the formation of the European Union in the Bible. Both things that seemed laughably ridiculous 100 years ago. Laughably ridiculous for 95% of the last 2,000 years. Just trust that as is the case with all Bible prophecy, God's gonna end up being right. His track record is perfect. Verse eight, Daniel says, I was considering the horns. So to Daniel, the first three beasts are pretty straightforward. It's this fourth beast that really gets his attention and it's what he writes about in detail because he understands this beast is especially important. So as he looks at this fourth beast, the revived Roman Empire, he sees it's got 10 horns on its head. And he's looking at these horns, trying to figure out what they mean, because apparently he can tell there's something important about these horns. So, so Daniel and our camera work, if you will, they like zoom in on these horns on this beast's head, and weird things begin happening. It says there was another horn, underline another horn, a little one that comes up among them. So this 11th little horn appears on the head of this beast. Write this down. The little horn is Antichrist. It's Antichrist. And when this horn first appears, he's smaller than the other 10. Antichrist is not gonna seem like a threat at first, but we'll see as we keep reading, he's far more powerful than he first appears. Then it says, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So as Antichrist works behind the scene to consolidate power, one of the things that's going to happen during the rise of Antichrist on the political scene is three of these 10 leaders of this revived Roman Empire are gonna oppose him. They're gonna say, no way, you're not gonna lead us. You're not gonna rule us. And they're not gonna get on board with his agenda. And Antichrist is gonna take them out, definitely politically, perhaps literally. 
It's going to be one of the steps in Antichrist's rise that's going to establish his power. And these seven remaining leaders are going to be totally behind him. Then we read, and there in this horn were eyes like, underline like the eyes of a man. And a mouth speaking pompous words. And as you study this Antichrist figure throughout the Bible, you'll find that one of his defining characteristics is he's got a big mouth. He's got a big mouth. You know, if you study your history, you'll find that Hitler was possibly the greatest orator, the greatest speaker in the history of the world. He, he had a speaking power that history describes as magnetic and hypnotic. And when Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to make Hitler's speaking skills look like an elementary school debate team, like show and tell. When he speaks, he is going to just suck people right into every word that he says. But we're going to find in the Bible that he loves to boast about how great he is, and he loves to blaspheme God. He loves to curse God and everyone who follows God, even those in heaven. So write this down. Antichrist will love to boast and blaspheme. He's going to love to boast and blaspheme. And then I put a reference in Revelation 13 on your outline that we'll read a little bit later. So I love what happens next because it's as though Jesus, who even though Daniel is writing this, Jesus is the one causing the things that happen to happen. He's the one revealing this to Daniel. And I love what happens next because it's as though Jesus can tell that you and I, the reader, may be getting a little bit weirded out and troubled by all this talk about Antichrist and the terrible revived Roman Empire that he's going to lead. So God's like, okay, we'll push the pause button. We're going to change scenes real quick because he wants to remind us about the power of the God that we serve. Verse 9, I watched till thrones, underline thrones, were put in place. And the Ancient of Days, underline Ancient of Days, was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. It wasn't wool, it was like pure wool. His throne, underlined throne, was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court, underlined court, was seated and the books were opened. So I need to highlight a couple of quick things for you Bible students. Again, I wish I had time to explain all these things fully, but I can just make quick observations and give you some references you can dig into later. So if you don't understand this, that's okay, don't worry, we're gonna keep moving. So what thrones might these be? There are really two views worth considering. They're either the 24 elders of Revelation 4.4 and Revelation 5 verses eight through nine. You can listen to our study on Revelation to know more about them. Or they are for the seating of the divine council that we hinted at in our study of Daniel 4. This council that God assembles and invites to make decisions with him. I wish we had time to dig into it more, but we got to keep moving. So dig into that in your own time, in your own studies. But as a bonus observation, did you notice that God the Father's throne with wheels and fire matches Ezekiel's vision of God's throne in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 15. Check it out. Very interesting. So let's find out now what this court is discussing because no matter what we can agree that it says there's a court being assembled. This is in heaven. God the Father, the Ancient of Days is the one heading up this court and they're talking about something. Verse 11, he says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. So this Antichrist guy is still talking this whole time. Blah, 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 I'm so great, I'm so wonderful, I'm the best. 
And then he says, I watched till the beast, which was this talking antichrist that the horn is on. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So the verdict of this court is that the fourth beast, Antichrist, is gonna be slain and thrown into the fire. This moment is recorded in Revelation 19.20 as taking place at the time of Jesus' second coming. I'll just read to you what Revelation 19.20 says. It says, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So write this down. Antichrist is destined for destruction. He's destined for destruction at the end of the great tribulation. Again, wish I could get into detail about what the great tribulation is. Can't do that right now. Antichrist is destined for destruction at the end of the great tribulation. Verse 12, then we read this. As for the rest of the beasts, so the other three kingdoms, the other empires from this vision, they had their dominion taken away yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So all Daniel's saying there is, hey, these empires were allowed to exist for a time and then their time was over. Unlike this fourth beast, which is divinely destroyed and thrown to the burning flame. Again, this fourth beast, this fourth empire is not like the others. One of these is not like the others. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, and you just gotta underline the whole rest of verse 13. One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So please know, we're going to go through this, but this is going to be one of the greatest evidences in the Bible for the existence of the Trinity. Because you've got to notice that in Daniel's vision, these are two distinct beings. They're two distinct beings. One is the Ancient of Days. The other is like the Son of Man, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Everybody see that? There's no way you can make those two the same thing because the one coming on the clouds of heaven is coming to the Ancient of Days. So let me explain this. When Jesus has been arrested during his earthly ministry and he's being interrogated by the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, Luke's gospel records that Jesus tells them, hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is speaking about himself and the religious leaders understand this, which is why we read next, then they all said, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you rightly say that I am. So Jesus was claiming to be the son of man who was also the son of God. Matthew's gospel documents the same event and records this. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's crystal clear. So write this down. The ancient of days is God the Father. The ancient of days is God the Father. The one like the Son of Man is Jesus. God who became a man to die for us on the cross and defeat death by rising from the dead. The ancient of days is God the Father. The one like the Son of Man is Jesus. Now notice Next, what the Ancient of Days does for this one like the Son of Man. I love this, verse 14. I have the whole thing underlined in my Bible. Then to him, 
to the one like the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed. If you've been with us through our study of Daniel, I just want to point out to you the the beautiful flow in the book of Daniel. In chapter 4, after God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar by taking away his kingdom and then giving it back and leading Nebuchadnezzar into a relationship with God, Nebuchadnezzar says this about God in chapter 4, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. In chapter six of Daniel, after God miraculously rescues Daniel from the lion's den, King Darius says of the Lord, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. And now here in chapter seven, we meet this one. We see this one whose kingdom is everlasting and it's Jesus. And that's really the whole theme of the book of Daniel is comparing the kingdoms of the world to the kingdom of God and saying the kingdoms of the world are all going to fall away but the kingdom of Jesus is an everlasting kingdom. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit. He just means I was troubled by all this. And the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to, and then underline, one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. This is an angel. This is one of the they we saw back in verse 5 who were commanding the beasts. And Daniel asks him, what does this all mean? Like, what does it mean? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation, underline interpretation of these things. And then I underlined verse 17 and verse 18. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High, that just means those who believe in Jesus, who put their faith in Jesus, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And this moves me on a couple of levels. Firstly, because this angel is telling Daniel and us, listen, there's going to be some massive kingdoms of men that are going to rise and fall on the earth. There's going to be some men and people in power that are going to be very, very scary for some seasons of history. But here's what you need to remember, believer. In the end, there's only going to be one kingdom that's going to last forever, and it's going to be the kingdom of Jesus, and it's going to be possessed by those who belong to Jesus. And that's a good reminder for us who are living in the world today, that no matter what you read in the paper, no matter what you read online, no matter what's actually happening in the world, there's only one ending to this story, and it's Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. Secondly, I'm moved by this reality. In verse 14, who was this everlasting kingdom given to? It was given to the one like the Son of Man. It was given to Jesus. But what does Jesus do with his kingdom here in verse 18? He gives it to the saints. He gives it to the saints, his brothers and sisters, you and I, those who belong to the Lord. Jesus is going to rule this kingdom, but he's going to invite us to rule and reign with him. And there's some things about God that are just, they're just too wonderful to explain. I can't dissect that. I can't explain that. All you can do is just say, wow, man, thank you, God for your kindness to us, because that's incredible. We didn't do anything to earn it. Verse 19, he says, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all others. 
exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So this fourth beast is especially disturbing to Daniel and he specifically wants to know more about this beast, both phases of the Roman Empire. Verse 21, I was watching and the same horn, this antichrist, was making war against the saints, believers, and and then underline this phrase, prevailing against them, prevailing against them. So remember in our timeline, these saints are those who come to faith in Jesus after the rapture. The church, everyone who's put their faith in Jesus before the rapture has already been taken off the earth by Jesus to be with him while all this terrible stuff unfolds on the earth. And I had you underline the phrase prevailing against them because in Revelation 13, 7, we read about the same time period and we're told that the beast was, quote, allowed to make war with the saints and to overcome them, to overcome them. And so if this is talking about the church, if you're one of these people that's like, no man, I just don't see it. I think we're on the earth during the tribulation. I think we go through all that bad stuff. You got a real problem with the Bible because you just made Jesus a liar. Because there's a moment in Jesus's ministry when he looks at Peter and he says in Matthew 16, 18, I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail against it. So why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because here in verse 21 in Daniel 7, Antichrist is, quote, prevailing against them. It's not a problem, however, if you understand that the church that Jesus talks about to Peter is gone from the earth. They're not prevailed against because it's not talking about the church. It's talking about those who come to faith after the rapture, during those seven years, during the three and a half years of the great tribulation. They're saved, they're gonna be with the Lord in heaven, but if you study through Revelation, you discover that those who come to faith in Jesus after the rapture are not part of the group known as the church. They're in a different category, even in heaven. The church is made up of those who place their faith in Jesus between the resurrection of Jesus and the rapture in what's known as the church age. And if you read the Bible, you'll find out it's far better on earth and in heaven to be part of the church. Way better to be part of the church. Listen, I I gotta say this. If you're here and you're thinking, ah, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess what I'll do is just see. I mean, if all this stuff happens, it's gonna be pretty obvious and then I'll become a Christian. Listen, if you don't have the faith to be a Christian now in the church age when it's easy, what in the world makes you think you'll have the faith and strength to become a Christian when people are getting killed for it by Antichrist? Don't delude yourself. It's a way better option to become a believer now and just skip the whole thing and be part of the church. That's the much better option. So write this down. These are tribulation saints, not the church. They're tribulation saints, not the church. Suffice it to say, if your theology makes Jesus a liar, your theology is wrong. Verse 22. 
So he's going to prevail against the saints after the rapture, Antichrist is, verse 22, until, until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. That's because Ancient of Days here is God the Father. It's not talking about Jesus coming to earth. It's talking about this court that we've been reading about where a judgment is made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came, underline the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So in other words, Antichrist is overpowering, he's overcoming, he's prevailing against everyone who's come to know Jesus in the great tribulation until in this divine court, God the Father says, all right, it's time, I'm making my judgment, it's time for the saints to possess the kingdom. This kingdom of Satan is over. It's just another reminder that God will be in control of the timeline of all these things. He's the one who's going to decide how long Satan is allowed to persecute these tribulation saints. There's a predetermined time when Jesus will return, set up his kingdom on earth, and we're going to reign and rule with him in his millennial kingdom. Verse 23, thus he, the angel, said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So the stage will be set politically. But this revived Roman Empire formed around these ten leaders is still going to need a very special leader. And another shall rise after them. It's the little horn. It's Antichrist. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. These are the three horns that were plucked out by the roots. The three leaders that Antichrist will take out for not getting on board with his agenda. Verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and then this is really interesting, shall intend to change times and law. So when Antichrist rises to power on the world stage and runs the world, he's obviously going to make some significant changes to the legal system. We know he's going to change laws because one of the defining things he'll do is create what's commonly known as the mark of the beast, as a way of showing that you are allied with him, just like people had to make a pinch offering to the Caesars, you'll have to take a mark of the beast and the Bible says you won't be able to buy and sell anything without it. So we know he's gonna change laws, but according to this verse, Antichrist will also want to change times. Right now it's 2017. 2017 years from what? From the birth of Christ. However, if you're a Muslim, your year zero is the year that we know as 622 AD because that's the year Muhammad emigrated from Mecca to Medina. So apparently Antichrist is gonna to wanna to remove any and every reference to Jesus from the earth, including the dating system that we use which revolves around the birth of Christ. He's gonna to wanna to do away with that. Then we read, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Not going to go into detail, but let's just quickly refresh our memories on that phrase, a time, times, and half a time. Back in Daniel 4, we learned that the word times means years. So a time equals one year. Times is like our word both. It's what's known as a dual. It just means two years, which means half a time means half a year, six months. So the phrase a time, times, and half a time refers to a period of three and a half years. Shortly after the rapture takes place, so the rapture happens, everyone who's a part of the church is removed from the earth. Shortly after that, a period of seven years is going to begin according to the Bible. It's going to be marked by the rise of Antichrist to the world stage. 
And the event that's going to kick off the seven years is going to be Antichrist doing what seems to be impossible. He's going to broker peace in the Middle East between Israel and her enemies. He's actually going to do it. He's going to bring peace to the Middle East. And he's even going to arrange for the temple of the Jews to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, almost certainly next to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They're going to share the Temple Mount, and it's going to be a big kumbaya type of scene for three and a half years. The whole world's going to love him. For those first three and a half years, it's going to seem like everything's going great. Like I told you, if you're like, I think this dude is the Antichrist, people are going to be like, you think the guy who brought peace to the Middle East is the Antichrist. Right, right. That's good. Glad you think that. But behind the scenes, Antichrist is going to be consolidating power. He's going to take out these three leaders who oppose him. And at the halfway point of the seven-year period, after three and a half years, he's going to go into the temple of the Jews that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. He's going to set up a throne for himself, and he's going to say, I'm God, and it's time for you all to worship me. And this is going to kick off the back three and a half year period of the seven years, that's known as the Great Tribulation. That's when you're gonna see things like the mark of the beast. That's when you're gonna see things like a one world religion. Antichrist being permitted to persecute and kill those who love Jesus because they will refuse to worship Antichrist or take his mark. He's also going to declare war on Israel and the Jews. The Bible says the Great Tribulation is going to be twice as bad as the Holocaust. The Holocaust killed one out of every three Jews on the earth. The Great Tribulation will kill two out of every three. But God will miraculously protect around a third of the Jews as he leads them out to safety in the wilderness outside of Israel most likely in the rock city of Petra, which exists today in the country of Jordan. There are a lot of people who, when we talk about this three and a half years business, the great tribulation business, will say that that's not literal. It's not referring to a literal amount of time. It's poetic language. It's allegorical. But here's the problem. The Holy Spirit writes about this time period in the Bible using months, the word months in the book of Revelation, 42 months, Talks about it using days, 1,260 days in the book of Revelation. Talks about it in Daniel using the phrase a time, times, and half a time. And then when we reach Daniel chapter 9, we're going to find out that they use the word week to describe a period of seven years. And in Daniel 9, we're going to read about how things change dramatically halfway through this seven-year period after three and a half years. The Bible talks about this time period in years, months, days, a time, times, and half a time. And so I don't know what else the Holy Spirit could have done to make it clear he's talking about a literal time period of three and a half years. Now the parallel account to much of Daniel 7 is Revelation 13. You might have picked that up. This is how John the Apostle describes the fourth beast. I can just read it to you. We'll put it on the screen for you as well. This is what John sees when he sees the same thing Daniel does. He says, then I stood on the sand of the sea. There's that sea of humanity again. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of of a lion. So in, in John's vision, there are aspects of all these empires in this final awful beast. And we're going to find that John's not going to just be describing the revived Roman Empire. He's going to specifically write about Antichrist. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. 
Revelation tells us explicitly the dragon there is Satan. So all of Antichrist's success and power is gonna be given to him by Satan. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. They followed Antichrist. So they worshiped the dragon, they worshiped Satan who gave authority to the beast, to Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, Antichrist, saying, who's like the beast and and who can make war with him? So one of the things that's gonna happen is Antichrist is gonna survive an assassination attempt and it's gonna seem like he has come back from the dead and everyone's gonna worship Antichrist and Antichrist is gonna lead everyone to worship Satan as well and they're gonna say, if this guy can come back from the dead, I mean, who can stop him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. How long is that in years? Three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's only gonna be two categories of people during this time period. Those who Antichrist is trying to kill because they won't worship him and those who worship him. That's it. Back to Daniel 7 and verse 26 where there's good news. But the court shall be seated, this divine court, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Again, the divine council says, Satan, your time's up. In the last couple of chapters of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you find Antichrist and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire, followed shortly by Satan himself, where they will remain forever. Verse 27, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, underline this, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. Just incredible. Jesus is going to share his kingdom with us. And then underline his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. This is the theme of the book of Daniel. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What it literally is saying there is Daniel's just just shell-shocked by what he's seen, visions of the future that are both awesome, terrible, glorious and terrifying. I'm pretty sure I'd need a while to wrap my head around it too. We're almost done, so hang with me. Something I've talked about that I always wanna clear up whenever I get the chance to do this is this. Did you notice that the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that's gonna be possessed by the saints, believers, you and I, is spoken about literally? Did you notice that it's spoken about in the same terms as all the other empires and kingdoms? of the earth with one major difference. It's gonna be an everlasting kingdom. But it doesn't say, hey, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, those were all literal empires. This empire of Jesus is gonna be a figurative empire. It doesn't do that. It just continues to talk about his kingdom in the exact same way it talks about all the other kingdoms. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of Jesus, it speaks about it as being literal on the earth, under the rule and reign of Jesus, who shares his rule with his saints. You cannot study Daniel chapter seven and conclude that the kingdom of Jesus is something allegorical or mystical. It's literal, there's no other conclusion you can come to. 
And I also want us to notice this. When does the kingdom of Jesus begin, according to Daniel chapter 7? When does it begin? After the final kingdom, the revived Roman Empire has been destroyed along with Antichrist. You see, right now, no matter what you've heard, right now we're not living in the time when the kingdom of Jesus is on the rise. Do you understand that? We're not living in the time when things are getting better and better and more and more heavenly on the earth. We're living in the time when phase two of the fourth beast, the revived Roman Empire, is on the rise. That's where we're living. It's very, very plain right here in this chapter. So why do I point this out? Why am I so passionate about this? Because we need to understand the kingdom of Jesus has not yet come to the earth. Why is that important? Because I don't know what your belief is, but mine is, if the kingdom of Jesus has come to the earth, I'm horribly disappointed. Wouldn't you be? Because when the kingdom of Jesus is established on the earth, justice will roll like a river, pain and suffering will end, all things will be made new. So if this world today is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, I'm horribly disappointed. And I don't know about you, but I'm expecting much greater things when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. When it comes to the kingdom of Jesus, the Bible only tells us to do one thing right now. Pray for it to come. Pray for it to come. Jesus told his disciples, pray, thy kingdom come. Something that makes no sense if the kingdom of Jesus had already come when he first came on the earth. But he told his disciples, pray for my kingdom to come. Because even when Jesus was on the earth the first time, the kingdom hadn't come yet. It hadn't come. Trust me, when the kingdom of Jesus comes, you'll know. <laughs> you'll know. If you haven't studied through the book of Revelation with us, don't leave today without picking up a jump drive in the back. Do it. Become a student of Bible prophecy. Take this thing seriously. We're talking about God, what truth is, and what life is all about. Take it seriously. And here's what I want to encourage you with today. There's no comparison between the power of God and the power of Satan. There's no comparison. I always say this. They're, they're not yin and yang. They're not opposite sides of the same coin. God has no equal. He has no rival. None. I want to encourage you that God is in charge of history, past history, present history, and future history. And he has the power to make things happen exactly as he says they will. He's already proved that through his word. So we don't panic about what's going on in the world today. We put our trust in Jesus. He's in charge. Lastly, when we stand back and realize that, that we serve a God who can orchestrate history across thousands of years bend it to his will, and cause it to arrive at the exact place he wants it to, how ridiculous is it for us to then say, well, yeah, I know God can do that, but I just don't know if he's powerful enough to help me with my problem. I just don't know if he is powerful enough to help me with my taxes. I, I, I just don't know if he can lead me into a good relationship with somebody that seems way more difficult than orchestrating the minutia of history and empires across thousands and thousands of years. Listen, whatever your issue is, whatever your crisis is, whatever your challenge is, God is able. God is able. He holds everything, including you, in the palm of his hand. And I want to encourage you, as we're going to have a coming time of worship, Understand how powerful God is. 
take a step back and realize that the best thing you can do with your crisis, your issue, your situation is give it to God and say, God, you can deal with this. I can't handle this. This is too big for me. I need you to deal with this, Lord. Put it in his hands. Put your faith in him. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And let's... Father, thank you so much that you are the one who holds history in your hand. And we marvel as we step back and look at your command over history and your command over the future. Father, thank you that our hope and our confidence is not in any political leader. It's not in how much we have in our retirement or in our bank accounts. It's in our relationship with you that we know and serve the living God who has a kingdom that is coming that will last forever and will never fall away. And Jesus, thank you so much that you've invited us to rule and reign with you. Lord, you, you earned your kingdom on the cross. You earned it. We didn't earn anything. And yet you love to give. And you love to bring us into your work. Thank you for your generosity, for your kindness to us. You are so good. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.